Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 11.2, The World Chooses Sides. And welcome back to Musings on History. Last episode, I talked about the perceptions of Nazi Germany pre-1939 and the role that anti-Semitism and anti-communism played in the rise of fascism in Europe. This episode is about the reasons that many around the world decided to ally with either the Axis or allied powers and whether nationalism is a justifiable rationale for fighting alongside the Nazis. Chapter 1, The German Propaganda Machine. To paraphrase Tywin Lannister, wars are won with the quill and ink as much as they are with the sword. To that point, both the Allied and Axis powers unleashed propaganda campaigns all over the world in an effort to make new friends and weaken old foes. The world in 1940 was one of great Euro-American powers and colonized peoples, and the majority of those colonized were colonized by Great Britain and France. Not all of Great Britain and France's colonies wished to remain so, however, and many independence movement leaders saw the war in Europe as an opportunity to form alliances in a bid for independence. Nazi Germany, eager to regain lost territory and extend its presence beyond Europe, played on these grievances of the colonized peoples in order to weaken and disrupt the British war machine. The British Raj in India was the crown jewel of the British Empire, and keeping India firmly within this British sphere of influence was Winston Churchill's chief concern during World War II. India's Punjab region provided the grain necessary to feed British troops and citizens who were on war rations, and the Indian textile industry was also vital to the British war effort. Mohandas Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru were jailed by the British authorities for instigating the Quit India movement. This nonviolent form of protest saw Indians refusing to work on behalf of the British government and other nationalists sought out Britain's enemies to gain further support for independence. The most famous of these is Subhas Chandra Bose. Now, if you've ever wondered how a Hindu symbol of peace, the swastika, became associated with Nazi Germany, you might have Subhas Chandra Bose to thank for this. Bose was born into a wealthy Bengali family in Orissa, now called Odisha, And after being educated in England, he joined Gandhi and Nehru's Indian National Congress in 1921. By 1938, Bose was the Congress president, but after re-election in 1939, differences arose between him and the Congress leaders, including Gandhi, over the future federation of British India and the princely states. Men like Nehru were also uncomfortable with Bose's negotiable attitude towards nonviolence, which was called Satyagraha. And after a large majority of the Congress Working Committee members resigned in protest, Bose resigned as president and was eventually ousted from the party altogether. He then made his way to Nazi Germany in 1941, where the Nazis, who were still bombing London in the Blitz, were eager to work with Bose and move India out of British control. German funds were employed to open a Free India Center in Berlin and a 3,000-strong Free India Legion 
was recruited from among Indian POWs captured by Erwin Wommel's, Rommel, sorry's Africa Corps to serve under Bowes. Bowes even met with Adolf Hitler once in May of 1942, and when Bowes left Germany to engage Germany's ally, Imperial Japan, Hitler offered Bowes a submarine, which he used to get to the Japanese-occupied island of Sumatra in May 1943. With Japanese support, Bowes revamped the Indian National Army, or INA, with Indian POWs who had fought with the British in the Battle of Singapore. The Japanese declared a provisional government of free India on the occupied Andaman and Nicobar Islands with Bose as the president. But by late 1944 and early 1945, the British Indian Army had reversed the Japanese gains in India and almost half of the Japanese forces and participating INA contingent were killed. The remaining INA were driven down the Manay Peninsula and surrendered with the recapture of Singapore. Bowes chose to escape to Manchuria, which by 1945 had been taken by the Soviet Union. He picked up on Stalin and Churchill's antipathies towards one another, and he tried to play those antipathies against each other to get Soviet help against the British in India. But he never made it there, and he died in a plane crash in Japanese-controlled Taiwan on 18 August 1945. The Indian National Congress, which was the main instrument of Indian nationalism, praised Bose's patriotism, but they distanced himself from his tactics and ideology. And the British Raj, who had never really seen the INA as a serious threat, charged 300 INA officers with treason, but they eventually backtracked in the face of opposition by the Indian National Congress. In the British Mandate of Palestine, tensions have been growing for years between the British government and the Palestinians. Mohammed Amin al-Husseini was a Palestinian Arab nationalist and Muslim leader in mandatory Palestine. He served in the Ottoman army during the First World War, and after the war, he moved to Damascus, Syria, as a supporter of the Arab Kingdom of Syria. Following the Franco-Syrian War and the collapse of Arab Hashemite rule in Damascus, his goals shifted from pan-Arabism to a local form of nationalism for Palestinian Arabs, and he moved back to Jerusalem. From as early as 1920, he actively opposed Zionism and was implicated as a leader of the 1920 Nebi Musa riots. For his role in the riots, al-Husseini was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for incitement, but he was pardoned by the British. In 1921, Herbert Samuel, the British High Commissioner, appointed him Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, a position that he used to promote Islam while rallying a non-confessional Arab nationalism against Zionism. During this period, he was considered a very important ally by the British authorities. However, by the 1930s, al-Husseini was staunchly anti-British, and after the 1936-1939 Arab Revolt, he fled Palestine and took refuge in the French Mandate of Lebanon and then the Kingdom of Iraq. In the 1940s, he established himself in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, and during World War II, he collaborated with both Italy and Germany by making propaganda radio broadcasts and by helping the Nazis recruit Bosnian Muslims for the Waffen-SS on the grounds that they shared four of the same core principles, family, order, the leader, and faith. He also once met Adolf Hitler and requested backing for Arab independence and support in opposing the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Recently, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech where he claimed that Hitler did not originally want to exterminate the Jews, but al-Husseini gave him the idea for the final solution. And this is factually incorrect for two reasons. 
First of all, while al-Husseini was in staunchly anti-Zionist, meaning he did not want the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, he never publicly, or as far as anyone knows, privately espoused genocide of Jews. In fact, some of his correspondence with the British authorities in the 1920s, he suggested that the Soviet Union give up some of its territory to create a homeland for who he called the Khazarians, referencing the Khazar Khaganate, a trading empire in the Caucasus whose elites had converted to rabbinic Judaism in the 8th century. In the late 19th century, there were many theories that the core of Ashkenazi Jewry were descended from a hypothetical Khazarian Jewish diaspora that had migrated westward from modern-day Russia and Ukraine into modern-day France and Germany. Secondly, Al-Husseini met with Hitler in 1938 a year before World War II officially began and six years before Hitler ordered the final solution to be carried out. In 1938, Germany still maintained diplomatic relations with the uh, the United Kingdom and they had a policy called England politic, which essentially meant that the Germans would not interfere with how the UK conducted herself in her colonies, mandates, and protectorates. Also, Hitler's original plans for the Jews in Europe was for them and other undesirables to be a slave labor force for Germany. And the final solution was not enacted until late 1944, when Hitler began to realize that the war effort was failing and he wished to destroy as much evidence of the Holocaust as possible. Chapter 2, Self-Determination and Collaboration The Germans also made entreaties in Persia and Afghanistan, as well as with the KMT in China, since the Nazis unequivocally hated communists and would arm and aid in any anti-communist effort in the world. However, they were able to do most of their European recruiting by simply not being Russia. And I imagine telling the people of some nobody-ass country like Estonia that they were part of a master race probably tickled their otherwise unremarkable fancies. The Russian Empire had conquered vast swaths of the Eurasian landmass from the 16th to 19th century, subjugating the Latvians, Lithuanians, Poles, Finns, Georgians, and others. And Russians had always had a rather paternalistic view of Slavs and Orthodox people, seeing themselves as the guardians of these people. There were 15 constituent republics with their own capitals and governments in the USSR, But everything turned around Moscow and Russification was kind of the de facto status quo. In order to rise within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was different from the Communist Party of Russia, one needed to be fluent in Russian and also their native language, whereas Russians only needed to know Russian. There was also the issue of the forced migrations and deportations. Joseph Stalin prided himself on being the first commissar for nationalities in the Soviet Union, and indeed, most historians agree that non-Russian nationalities and ethnicities in the Soviet Union had the most freedom under Stalin, but Stalin was also incredibly paranoid. He saw most of the ethnic minorities in the USSR as possible fifth columns, and to his credit, he wasn't entirely wrong. American and British intelligence had identified ethnic groups and nationalities that would be the easiest to flip during the Russian Civil War, and Stalin countered this by routinely packing people up and sending them out to the far ends of the USSR where they'd be cut off not only from the rest of their people, but also from Western spies and agent provocateurs. Stalin's policies 
and the bitter legacy of the Russian Empire made several nationalities attractive to the Germans for recruitment purposes. The Nazis were not above dissembling, but for whatever reason, almost every country that allied with Germany to fight the Russians was under the impression that Germany would honor their loyalty with sovereignty, despite the fact that the Nazi regime regularly issued decrees reiterating their plans to rule over all of Europe and eventually the world. Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Finland, and Ukraine all had Waffen-SS units filled with local people who took oaths of loyalty to Hitler and the Nazi party and who shared at least some of the Nazi ideology. Latvia, which was initially occupied by Germany until 1943 and for the most part seemed pretty happy to be under German occupation, allowed the Germans to build two concentration camps in their country, Kaiserwald and Salaspils. The collaborationist government in Riga requested that the camps mainly be staffed with Latvians, but filled with Soviet POWs. Now, remember, concentration camps at this time were mostly work camps, and having them in their country was seen as an economic opportunity and not a crime against humanity. However, despite the fact that Latvia claims to have allied itself with Nazi Germany out of fear of the Russians, somehow Latvian Jews found themselves stripped of their citizenship and rights and then forced into the Riga, Lipaya, and Devinsk ghettos. In June 1943, when these ghettos were liquidated, the remaining Jews of Latvia, along with most of the survivors of the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto, were deported to Kaiserwald. Latvia claimed that at the time that no Jews were native to Latvia and that their entire Jewish population had been forced on them by the Russians to weaken the country. After the Germans occupied Hungary, Hungarian Jews were then sent to Kaiserwald, as were a number of Jews from Lodz and Poland. By March 1944, there were over 11,000 inmates in the camp and its subsidiaries, and none of them were Russian. Kaiserwald was a work camp for the entirety of World War II, unlike Auschwitz and Treblinka, which became extermination camps. The inmates of Kaiserwald were put into work were put to work by several large German companies, notably Algemeine Elektrizatsgesellschaft, which used a large number of female slaves from Kaiserwald in the production of electrical goods such as batteries. The Latvian Legion, which was the Waffen-SS Legion in Latvia, took part in some notable battles, such as the Siege of Leningrad and the Battle of Berlin, which were offensives that sent them into Soviet territory, the same Soviet territory that they claimed to be the same Soviet territory with the same Soviets that they claim to be so afraid of. So I guess sometimes preemptive strikes and invasions are okay. And sometimes they're not. I don't know. The Waffen SS Galicia, on the other hand, never even fought the Russians, which makes Yaroslav Hunka's standing ovation in Canadian parliament even sillier. The Waffen-SS Galicia primarily concerned itself with destroying Polish villages and decimating the Jewish population in Ukraine. And they were wiped out after one major battle, which was against a primarily Ukrainian Red Army force. So once again, I'm asking how slaughtering Polish civilians and Ukrainian Jews keeps your country safe from Russia, but I'm starting to think I'm never going to get an answer to that question. The Finnish relationship to the Nazis was the most interesting to me. Denmark does deserve praise for evacuating their entire Jewish population to the United Kingdom before Denmark was occupied by Germany in April 1940, but that kind of compassion was incredibly rare in the rabidly anti-Semitic Europe of the first half of the 20th century. 
Most countries that either willingly joined up with the Nazis or were forcefully occupied gave up their Jewish population without a second thought. However, Finland steadfastly refused to allow the Germans to build concentration camps in Finland, and they also refused to allow the Germans to destroy synagogues, expropriate Jewish wealth, or force Jewish uh, Finnish Jews into the ghettos. Jews in Finland didn't even have to wear a Star of David armband. Today, the Jewish population of Finland is about 10%, which is roughly what it was before World War II. No one can really explain why the Nazis allowed the Finns to protect their Jewish population, but it just goes to show that the Jews did not have to be the sacrificial lambs that countries made to keep themselves safe from the Soviets. Chapter 3. Japanese Pan-Asianism In the Pacific region, the Japanese had also employed a propaganda machine similar to the Nazis. If you'll recall from my series on W.E.B. Du Bois, in the 1930s, Du Bois and several other Americans were invited to Japan by the Japanese propaganda office to survey the living and working conditions of Koreans living in Japan. It was all staged, obviously, and Du Bois later regretted and apologized for championing pan-Asianism as a viable alternative to European colonialism. The KMT, which was the Chinese nationalist movement led by Chiang Kai-shek, also alternated between fighting with the Japanese in China against the communists led by Mao Zedong and fighting against the Japanese in southern China and the island of Formosa, which is now present-day Taiwan. The Japanese propaganda office used the idea of pan-Asianism to appeal to the peoples of Asia who had suffered under European colonialism. Originally, Japanese pan-Asianism believed that Asians shared a common heritage and must therefore collaborate in defeating their Western colonial masters. However, Japanese Asianism mostly focused on East Asian territories with occasional references to Southeast Asia and West Asia. Their ideologues were Tokichi Taru, who argued for equal Japan-Korea unionization for cooperative defense against the European powers, and Kentaro Oi, who attempted to push social reforms in Korea and establish a constitutional government in Japan. Pan-Asian thought in Japan was further popularized following the defeat of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. This sparked interest from Indian poets Rabindranath Tagore and Sri Aurobindo, and from the Chinese politician Sun Yat-sen, who was called the father of Chinese nationalism. The growing official interest in broader Asian concerns was shown in the establishment of facilities for Indian studies. In 1899, Tokyo Imperial University set up a chair in Sanskrit and Kawi, with a further chair in comparative religion being set up in 1903. In this environment, a number of Indian students came to Japan in the early 20th century, founding the Oriental Young Men's Association in 1900. Their anti-British political activity caused consternation to the Indian government following a report in the London Spectator. Okakura Kakuzo, a scholar and art critic, also praised the superiority of Asian values when the Japanese were victorious in the Russo-Japanese War. He stated, Asia is one, the Himalayas divide, only to accentuate two mighty civilizations, the Chinese with its communism of Confucius and the Indian with its individualism of the Vedas. But not even the snowy barriers can interrupt for one moment that broad expanse of love for the ultimate and universal, which is the common thought inheritance of every Asiatic race. 
enabling them to produce all the great religions of the world and distinguishing them from those maritime peoples of the Mediterranean and the Baltic who love to dwell on the particular and to search out the means, not the end of life. In this, Kakuzo was utilizing the Japanese concept of Sengoku, which existed in Japanese culture before the concept of Asia became popularized. Sengoku means the three countries, Honshu, which is the largest island of Japan, Kara, which is China, and Tenjiku, which is India. In the lead up to World War II, Japanese Pan-Asianism evolved rather into a more nationalist ideology that prioritized Japan's interests. This was evident by the growth of secret societies such as the Black Ocean Society and the Black Dragon Society, which committed criminal activities to ensure the success of Japanese expansionism. Exceptionally, Ryohei Uchida, which who was a member of the Black Dragon Society, was a Japan-Korea unionist and supported Filipino and Chinese revolutions. In addition, Asian territories were seen as reservoirs of economic resources and outlets for the emperor's glory to be displayed. These were evident in uh, government policies such as the Hako Ichiyu and the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere Agendas. Eventually, even Kakuzo was critical of Japan's expansionism after the Russo-Japanese War, viewing it as no different from Western expansionism. He expected other Asians to call them embodiments of the white disaster. The Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere was a pan-Asian union that the Empire of Japan tried to establish. Initially, it covered Japan, uh, Japanese-controlled Manchukuo, and China, but as the Pacific War progressed, it also included territories in Southeast Asia. The term was first coined by Minister for Foreign Affairs Hachiro Arita on 29 June 1940. The proposed objectives of this union were to ensure economic self-sufficiency and cooperation among the member states, along with resisting the influence of Western imperialism and Soviet communism, but most militarists and nationalists saw it as an effective propaganda tool to enforce Japanese supremacy without provoking significant resistance. The latter approach was reflected in a document released by Japan's Ministry of Health and Welfare called An Investigation of Global Policy with the Yamato Race as Nucleus, and it promoted Japanese hegemony in the Union. Japanese spokesmen openly described the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere as a device for the development of the Japanese race. The outbreak of World War II in Europe gave the Japanese an opportunity to fulfill the objectives of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere without significant pushback from the Western powers and China, who was weakened by civil war. This entailed the conquest of Southeast Asian territories to extract natural resources. If territories were unprofitable, the Japanese would encourage their subjects, including those in mainland Japan, to endure economic suffering and prevent outflow of material to the enemy. In 1940, After Japanese advancements into French Indochina, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered a trade embargo on steel and oil, raw materials that were vital to Japan's war effort. Without steel and oil imports, Japan's military could not fight. As a result of the embargo, Japan decided to attack the British and Dutch colonies in Southeast Asia from 7 to 9 December 1941, seizing these raw materials needed for their war effort. These efforts were successful, with Japanese politician Nobusuke Kishi announcing via a radio broadcast that vast resources were now available for Japanese use in these newly conquered territories. As part of its war drive in the Pacific, 
Japanese propaganda included phrases like Asia for the Asiatics and talked about the need to liberate Asian colonies from the control of Western powers. They also planned to boost Japanese immigration to Southeast Asia to supplant the hegemony that the Peranakan Chinese in Southeast Asia had in the agricultural market. Playing on longstanding tensions between the Peranakan Chinese and the Southeast Asian native population. Although invading Japanese forces sometimes received rapturous welcomes throughout recently captured Asian territories due to anti-Western and occasionally anti-Chinese sentiment, the subsequent brutality of the Japanese military led many of the inhabitants of those regions to regard Japan as being worse than their former colonial rulers. The Japanese dropped pamphlets by airplane on the Philippines, Malaya, North Borneo, Sarawak, Singapore, and Indonesia, urging them to join the movement. Mutual cultural societies were founded in all conquered lands to ingratiate with the natives and try to supplant European colonial languages with Japanese as commonly used language. Multilingual pamphlets depicted many Asians marching or working together in happy unity with the flags of all the states and a map depicting the intended sphere. Other pamphlets proclaimed that they had been that they had given independent governments to the countries they occupied. The Japanese government directed that economies of occupied territories be managed strictly for the production of raw materials for the Japanese war effort. A cabinet member declared, there are no restrictions, they are enemy possessions, we can take them and do anything we want with them. For example, according to estimates under Japanese occupation, about 100,000 Burmese and Malay Indian laborers died while constructing the Burma-Siam Railway. Despite this, the Japanese would sometimes refrain from repressing certain ethnic groups, such as Chinese immigrants, as long as they supported the war effort. The Greater East Asia Conference took place in Tokyo from 5 to 6 November 1943. Japan hosted the heads of state of various component members of the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. The conference was also referred to as the Tokyo Conference, but the common language used at the conference was English. At the conference, Japanese Prime Minister Hideki Toho Tojo, sorry, greeted them with a speech praising the spiritual essence of Asia instead of the materialistic civilization of the West. Their meeting was characterized by the praise of solidarity and condemnation of Western colonialism, but without practical plans for either economic development or integration. And as there were no military representatives at the conference, no form of military coordination was planned either. The goals of the conference were to solidify the commitment of certain Asian countries to Japan's war effort and to improve Japan's world image. The following dignitaries attended. Hideki Tojo as Prime Minister of the Empire of Japan, Zhang Jinghui, Prime Minister of the Empire of Manchuria, Wang Wang Jingwei, President of the Republic of China, Bao Mao, Head of State of the State of Burma, Subhas Chandra Bose, head of the state of the Provisional Government of Free India, Jose P. Lario, president of the Republic of the Philippines, and Prince Juan Waitiakan, envoy from the Kingdom of Thailand. The ideology of the Japanese colonial empire contained two contradictory impulses. On the one hand, it preached the unity of the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere and celebrated the spiritual values of the East in opposition to the crass materialism of the West. In practice, however, 
The Japanese installed organizationally minded bureaucrats and engineers to run their new empire, and they believed in the ideals of efficiency, modernization, and engineering solutions to social problems. Japanese was the official language of the bureaucracy in all of the areas and was taught at schools as a national language. Japan set up puppet regimes in Manchuria and China, and the Imperial Army Army, sorry, operated ruthless administrations in most conquered areas, but paid more favorable attention to the Dutch East Indies with the goal of obtaining Dutch Indochina's oil wells. The Dutch colonial government destroyed these oil wells, but the Japanese repaired and reopened them within a few months of their conquest. Japan also sponsored an Indonesian nationalist movement under Sukarno, again with the goal of removing the Dutch influence from Indochina. Sukarno finally came to power in the late 40s after several years of fighting the Dutch. To build up the economic base of the co-prosperity sphere, the Japanese army envisioned using the Philippine Islands as a source of agricultural products needed by industry. Jobless farm workers in the Philippines flocked to the cities where there was minimal relief and very few jobs. The Japanese army tried using cane sugar for fuel, castor beans and copra for oil, daris for quinine, cotton for uniforms, and abaca for rope. The plans were difficult to implement due to limited skills, collapsed international markets, bad weather, and transportation shortages. The program in the Philippines failed, giving very little help to Japanese industry and diverting resources needed for food production. Filipinos quickly learned that co-prosperity meant servitude to Japan's economic requirements. Living conditions for the Filipinos were poor during the Japanese occupation, and transportation between the islands was difficult because of a lack of fuel. Food was in short supply, with sporadic famines and epidemic diseases that killed hundreds of thousands of Filipinos. In October 1943, Japan declared the Philippines an independent republic headed by President Jose P. Lorio, but the government proved to be ineffective and very unpopular as as Japan maintained very tight controls. The co-prosperity sphere collapsed when Japan surrendered to the Allies in September 1945. Dr. Ba Ma, the wartime president of Burma or uh, Myanmar under the Japanese, blamed the Japanese military. He said, the militarists saw everything only from a Japanese perspective and even worse, they insisted that all others dealing with them should do the same. For them, there was only one way to do a thing, the Japanese way. The only one goal and interest, the Japanese interest. Only one destiny for the East Asian countries to become so many Manchukos or Koreas tied tied forever to Japan. These racial impositions made any real understanding between the Japanese militarists and the people of our region virtually impossible. In other words, the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere operated not for the betterment of all Asian countries, but for Japan's interests, and thus the Japanese failed to gather any real support in other Asian countries. Nationalist movements did appear in these Asian countries during this period, and these nationalists cooperated with the Japanese to some extent. But the failure of Japan to understand the goals and interests of the other countries involved in the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere led to a weak association of countries bound to Japan only in theory and not in spirit. Dr. Baba argued that Japan could have engineered a very different outcome if they had only managed to act according to the declared aims of Asia for the Asiatics. He argued that if Japan had proclaimed this maxim at the beginning of the war and acted on that idea, no military defeat could have 
robbed her of the trust and gratitude of half of Asia or even more. And that would have mattered a great deal in finding for her a new, great and abiding place in a post-world world, post-war world in which Asia was coming to her own, coming into her own. The nationalist movements that sided with Japan during World War II were Azad Hind, which was an Indian nationalist movement, Indian Independence League, Indonesian National Party, Kapisainan Inpalanagin Kadsabagang Pilipinas, whew, sorry, which was a Philippine nationalist ruling party of the Second Philippine Republic, Kezatuan Malay Muda, which was a Malayan nationalist movement, Khmer Isarok, which was a Cambodian Khmer nationalist group, Dobama Azioni, We Burmans Association, which was a Burmese nationalist association, and Dai Viet Nationalist Social National Socialist Party, which was a Vietnamese nationalist movement. Post World War II, many of these movements were well poised to pursue wars of independence from their colonial overlords largely due in part to the strategies and tactics they learned as part of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. Some, like Suharto in Indonesia and Bama in Burma or Myanmar, said that they mainly learned what not to do from the Japanese. Next episode, I'll discuss the ways that the defeated Axis powers were treated at the end of World War II and how these downstream effects resonate today. Join me next time for more... Musings on History.